just watched is the man whose words we've been studying for all this while in his letter to the Romans. And we continue today in our series in Romans, part 39, entitled Stumbling Blocks or Stepping Stones. I would invite you to bow with me once more as we prepare to enter God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that it was by your Holy Spirit many years ago that you anointed the Apostle Paul so powerfully and with such wisdom to record your words. And that, Lord, through his experience and and through the way that you used his life in such a mighty way, we have uh, all of that insight and all of that wisdom and your wisdom for us to study and to hear today. And so we thank you, Lord, for your faithful servant, Paul. And we thank you for the way that you work so powerfully in his life and that through him you still speak today as we've been studying uh, through this series and we continue today. And I always marvel, Lord, at the way that your word is timely. And even as we study through it, it, it is always fresh and new. And so I pray, Lord, that this word again would be timely for each one of us, that it would be fresh and new, that you would speak through me, your servant, that we could receive this word as from you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I read a story this past week about a man sitting in his den reading the newspaper. Meanwhile, his wife was working in the kitchen. As he read the newspaper, he came across an article and suddenly called out, I knew it! I just knew it! Women talk way more than men. This article here says that on average, a woman speaks 30,000 words per day, while a man only speaks 15,000 words per day. To which his wife then called out from the kitchen, That's only because we have to repeat everything we say to you men twice. To which he then replied, What was that, dear? (laughs) Well, today I'm going to do a little bit of repeating myself as we begin this sermon. Because what we learned in our sermon last week is what we're continuing off of in chapter 14 this week. It builds directly off of last week. So just a little bit of a recap from last week. Now, of course, the original context Paul was addressing in the church at Rome in the first century, and the things he's addressing particularly in this chapter is that it seems that disputes had arisen between predominantly the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers. And disputes had arisen over matters of personal conviction and conscience regarding things such as whether or not to observe certain dietary restrictions or holy days. These are the examples that Paul cited. Paul referred to those who still felt conviction about following certain restrictions as the one with weaker faith, and the ones he referred to as having liberty regarding those things as the ones with stronger faith. So we see that what was happening was the weak judged the strong for what they believed to be an illicit use of Christian freedom, and the strong were looking down on the weak for what they perceived to be a lack of freedom. And both sides were judging the other from their own personal convictions. And so here, Paul does something that I said last week was rather surprising. For rather than telling the weaker ones that they were wrong and should become more like the stronger ones, he instead leaves the issues aside and actually rebukes both sides equally for being equally guilty of something which was far worse than whatever that was that they were disputing. 
And the thing he says that was far worse was that they were looking down on and passing judgment on their fellow believers. And so what was the solution to this problem? Well, Paul laid it out that first, we recognize that God is the judge. We are not the judge. That job has not been given to us. God is the judge. We recognize that he alone knows the hearts and motives of people. And so we leave that job to him. Second, he pointed out that we recognize that our job in all of this is that in spite of our differences, to accept and to love one another. And this is where he prefaces the whole chapter is accept one another. And later on, he reinforces that saying again, accept one another. And so in summary, the aim of the Christian is, as Peter Meiderlin wrote back in the 17th century, in matters of faith, unity. In matters of opinion, liberty, and in all things, love. Now today, we pick up off of this recap now, the repeat of last week, and we pick up in verse 13 of Romans 14. If you haven't turned there yet, please do, if you have your Bibles. Now here in verse 13, Paul continues to build off of what I've just uh, given us a recap of to further teach on specifically how those who would consider themselves the stronger or more mature believers in the faith, how they should behave in relationship towards those who are less mature in the faith. And so, of course, here I'll I'll pause for a moment to say, who here wouldn't consider themselves amongst the more mature, right? He's kind of playing a little bit of a game here because who would say, oh yes, I'm in the weaker category, right? That, That, you know, by default, everyone is going to say, oh no, I'm for sure. You know, I have, I'm not perfect, but I'm in the stronger category, right? And so he's saying, well, if you want to consider yourself in the stronger category of those more mature in the faith, then these are the things that will prove that you are in fact in that category of being mature in the faith. And he, he cites five specific things in this passage that I'm going to draw out for our attention this morning. Five specific things that are the proof that you are in fact mature in the faith as regarding our relationship towards those who may be less mature in the faith. And so it should come as little surprise as I lay that out for us that it all begins with our attitude, our core attitude. This is where it begins. Let's read verse 13 and onward. Paul says, Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind... This is a matter of attitude, he says here, a matter of making up your mind to not put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God. So we'll stop right there. Now, this whole passage, I read the whole thing because it all connects together. It's a whole thought. Paul is saying within this whole thought that if you are truly mature in the faith, 
and you really understand your freedom in Christ, then it should be demonstrated by these five things. So the first thing is this. We must be completely done with having a judgmental attitude towards others. He says right at the, at the outset, stop passing judgment on one another. Be done with it. Make up your mind that this is not going to be a part of your life any longer. This is number one. If you're really going to be mature in the faith, just make up your mind once and for all, judgment and having an attitude of judgment is over in your life. Warren Wiersbe, talking about this exact passage years ago, he said this about the, about the subject of passing judgment. Warren Wiersbe said, We are just like the Pharisees of old in many ways. We Christians have a way of majoring on minors. I have seen churches divided over matters that were really insignificant when compared to the vital things of the faith. I have heard of churches being split over the location of the piano in the sanctuary and whether or not to serve meals on Sundays. Now, this was back in the 80s that he wrote these words, but it's just an example of how it's so easy that if we get into a mindset of passing judgment, it really doesn't matter what we're passing judgment about anymore because it's the attitude. Chuck Swindoll, also speaking on this topic, he told about a young missionary family that he knew of who had been called to the mission field far, uh, far away. And he knew that there, in this very remote location, there were many things that they, uh, you know, from the United States that they could no longer enjoy. And one of those things was peanut butter. A simple thing, a simple luxury, but everyone in their family absolutely loved peanut butter. And it was one of the things, those simple pleasures that they missed. And so somewhere along the line in their, in their time as missionaries in this nation, some friends had asked them, what's, what's something that, that you need that we could bless you with? And so they had shared with these friends in, back in the States that what they really missed was peanut butter, as funny as that sounded. Could you send us some peanut butter? Well, they did just that. In fact, they, they sent them a whole carton of peanut butter, not just one. They, they got a bunch of it. But apparently, word got out to a fellow missionary family that this family, what they had asked for was peanut butter, and here they would got a whole crate of it, and, and, and this other family was disturbed by this because what a waste to send peanut butter when they could have been sending vital supplies like medicine or Bibles or things that were much more important than peanut butter. And, and it became such an issue that a rift grew between the two missionary families. And sadly, it got so petty and so bad that the young missionary family finally left the mission field entirely and never returned. And Chuck Swindoll knew this family personally and how painful this was all over some peanut butter. Now, I know this sounds pretty extreme, but the, the history of the church shows that Christians have been divided over many petty issues, whether it's the location of the piano in the sanctuary or peanut butter or, or any other such thing. And it's why Paul took this matter so seriously when he told these Romans repeatedly, do not look down on each other. Do not judge one another. Make up your minds to stop it. This attitude of judgment has to end. And so he repeats it throughout this passage multiple times. And so he's saying, if you're really mature, this has got to be fundamental in your life. Make up your mind. Stop passing judgment on one another to be done with it. Now, number two, commit yourself to an attitude 
of loving concern for your brother or sister's spiritual well-being. I know that's a mouthful, I'll repeat it. Commit yourself to an attitude of loving concern for your brother or sister's spiritual well-being. This is the opposite of judgment. Judgment saying, well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to make it my issue of concern what I perceive that my brother or sister is all doing wrong. But this is the opposite. It's saying, I want to have an attitude of concern for their well-being, especially spiritually. And so Paul clearly considered all of the disputable matters that were being debated in that first century church and the things he cited, dietary restrictions, whether to follow sacred days, the Jewish calendar, all those sorts of things, he considered them as secondary to the supreme matter of having an attitude of loving concern towards each other and then acting accordingly. In verse 15, he says as much. He says, If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. So here we see for Paul what was on the menu and whether or not your conscience was clear to eat whatever was on the menu, that was of far less importance, secondary importance, than your attitude of concern, or as he puts it, lack thereof, that your brother or sister may be spiritually distressed over what you're eating. So here he's saying a a mature attitude for a believer is to be more concerned about your fellow believer's spiritual well-being than about exercising your personal liberty. And this leads us directly into the third thing that demonstrates true maturity of faith. And the third thing is this, it piggybacks off of the second, about having an attitude of loving concern for your brother or sister's spiritual well-being. And the third is this, do not insist upon exercising your personal freedom in a certain area, if, if, by doing so, you know that you are putting a stumbling block in their path. So here's the, this is, this is, this is the whole crux of the matter right here. Because we can't always know, right? We can't always know where someone else is at in their journey. We can't know if by exercising an area of personal liberty where your conscience is clear that you are in fact putting a stumbling block in front of someone else. We can't, Uh, We can't always know and we we can't always live in a mindset of just worrying about, well, am I possibly putting a stumbling block? That's not what Paul's saying. But he's saying, if you know, if you know that this is distressing to someone else and you persist in, in exercising your personal liberty in an area in the full knowledge that you are putting a stumbling block in another believer's path, then it goes back to now you are not acting in love, point two. And so he's saying true maturity is the willingness to surrender your personal liberty in areas for the sake of the weaker brother. And so again, he cites the dietary things, the disputable issues, things whether you could eat or drink. Paul says now here, nothing is unclean in itself. He's convinced of this. He says that the food itself, he's convinced, is neutral in and of itself, It's neither inherently good or inherently bad. However, if, for instance, someone of weaker faith were to proceed to, let's say, eat pork, something that is unkosher, and it violates their conscience, then Paul says, to proceed with violating your own conscience for that person would then be sin, and so they should abstain from it. Further, Paul states, 
that though his own conscience was completely free and clear to eat anything and everything, he had no problem. He is like, if it had been offered to an idol, I know the idol's nothing. It doesn't bother me one bit. I'll belly up and I'll eat. However, though he had complete liberty in this area, from an attitude of spiritual maturity, if he knew that he was with someone whose conscience was violated in this area, and that by him to just eat right in front of them, that this was going to be a problem for this person. It was going to distress them. It was going to put a stumbling block in front of them. Then he was also at liberty not to eat the food. Not out of obligation to the law, because his conscience was clear, remember? Not out of obligation to the law, but motivated by an attitude of love and concern for the spiritual well-being of his fellow believer. So Paul says he didn't, though he had liberty, he did not insist upon his liberty. Not because of the law, not because of obligation to it, but out of deep concern and love for his fellow believers that he would not put a stumbling block in front of them. Paul also spoke of drinking wine. And this is another good example of matters of personal conviction regarding the consumption of beverages that contain alcohol in them. Now, the clear prohibition in Scripture is, of course, clearly, repeatedly against drunkenness. Let's, let's have no debate here. Drunkenness is a sin the Christian should not participate in whatsoever. Paul himself actually stated that drunkenness was in a list of sins just back in Romans 13 and verse 13 where it was one of the things he says, be done with these things, that the things of darkness. And he listed drunkenness in there. However, now here's the nuanced part. Drinking wine in and of itself is not prohibited nor inherently sinful in and of itself. For Jesus himself turned water into wine. Jesus himself drank wine. He was accused of being a friend of drunkards. And in fact, at the Lord's Supper, he used wine, the cup, to institute the Lord's Supper. And the wine representing his shed blood, which we share in at communion. However, the excess of overindulging to the point of drunkenness can be a temptation for some. It can be. And some people think it's not, and and they can go too far, and they can get tripped up and fall into this sin. Now, especially for some people who maybe came out of a worldly culture where they grew up in that the party lifestyle, in fact, this is when I was growing up, a lot of teens I talked to, the whole point of drinking was to get drunk. There was no even thought of moderation. That was just foreign, and it is for a lot of, of, of teenagers today, and people where the whole point of having something with alcohol is to get drunk. It's a well-known fact that for a recovering alcoholic, even one drink can be enough to cause them to fall off the proverbial wagon and lose their sobriety. And so for that reason, they need to be very strict and clear about avoiding anything whatsoever. Because even one drink could be enough to send them down that slippery slope right back into the sin of drunkenness. And so they have to abstain entirely. And so in a situation where, let's say, one Christian has never had a problem with drinking to excess in their entire life, their conscience is clear to have a glass of wine, but they're at a table with someone who they know has had a drinking problem, and that by exercising their freedom or liberty in this area, they could cause that person to stumble and to fall back into drunkenness, then Paul emphatically states, and we'll look here at verses 20 and 21. 
Paul emphatically says this, do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine, and there he references wine specifically, or do anything else, very broad now, right? He's citing two examples with dietary things, but now he's saying, or anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. And so again, Paul is couching this all in, I'm at liberty, I could have this food, I could drink this wine, I am not, I'm not at risk of sinning against my conscience nor falling into the sin. But if my brother is because of me, I will abstain for their sake. And it all boils down to this. What is my attitude? Do I insist on exercising my personal liberty and freedom in all areas of personal conviction at all times, even if that means I may cause another believer to stumble? Or rather, do I exercise an attitude where out of loving concern for others, I am willing, more than willing, to humbly surrender my personal liberties as may be necessary at times, not out of obligation to the law, but rather out of love, in order to lift up another believer so that they can continue to grow in maturity of faith. In other words, the question is this, the title of the sermon, will I be a stumbling block or a stepping stone? Paul says he's made up his mind. He's done with being a stumbling block. He wants to be a stepping stone for others. There's a poem by a man named R. Lee Sharp that goes like this. Isn't it strange that princes and kings and clowns that caper in sawdust rings and common folk like you and me are the builders of eternity? To each is given a bag of tools, a shapeless mass and a book of rules, and each must make, ere time has flown, a stumbling block or a stepping stone. Each must make, ere time is flown, a stumbling block or a stepping stone. So as you think about all these things that we've just heard this morning, as we evaluate our own lives, and as we look in the mirror, we've got to ask ourselves the question, as Paul confronts us with it in God's word, which one am I? Which one? Am I a stumbling block or am I a stepping stone? Does my life hinder people in their faith or does my life encourage people in their faith? Am I on the, the construction crew or the demolition crew? Now, I know this is black or white terms here. And the, the fact is, of course, when we confront ourselves with these things, we always go with contrasts. But I think if all of us are honest, at least I know for myself, that if you've been a Christian for any length of time whatsoever, you've likely been both at one time or another. You've likely been both. In fact, if we're really honest and we recognize our struggle against the flesh, against sin, and against Satan, it's guaranteed that at some point we've been both. There's been a time where we've failed in some way that has been a stumbling block to someone else. However, by the grace of God and his power at work in our lives, there have also been times of victory or by God's power at work in our lives, we were a stepping stone in someone else's life. Where we actually were used by God to help them grow in faith and to step closer to him. And to, and to take a further step into maturity. And so, 
The fact that we've been both should not surprise us. It goes back to Romans chapter 7 and that war between the spirit and the flesh. In this process of sanctification, we don't always get it right. But Paul's saying that should be our aim. Is that as we grow into maturity, remember that's the focal point here. As we grow into maturity, the evidence of it is that our pursuit should be more and more to be a stepping stone and less and less to be a stumbling block. It's not about if we've ever been either, because chances are we've been both, but it's that the pursuit is towards one thing, which is to be more of a stepping stone and less of a stumbling block. Because remember, the spiritual life of a Christian is a journey. It's not static, it's dynamic. It is a journey of growth from the point of our salvation until the day we reach glory in heaven. Not one of us, not a single one, not the Apostle Paul himself, starts out as a fully mature and grown-up Christian. We all start out as infants in the faith, and we need the pure milk of the word. But we must grow up and go on to the, the meat of the word and the meat of faith and maturity. But we all start out as babies. And so we must learn to crawl before we can walk. And we must learn to walk before we can run, and we must learn to run before we can jump, and so on and so forth. This is a process. Our sanctification is a process. It is a journey. And yes, it takes time. And yes, we will fall along the way. But by the grace of God, we get back up and we continue the journey. And yes, those bumps and bruises sometimes are painful, but they can also be great learning moments where we recognize that, yes, I stumbled here, and I caused someone else to stumble here, but by the grace of God, we can both get back up and continue this journey together, having learned from where we fell. And so just as we each need much mercy and grace from the Lord along this journey, we must also learn to give mercy and grace to one another along this journey. For this, too, is a part of our journey of sanctification as the Lord makes us more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ until that final day of completion in glory. And so now we come in to the fourth thing that Paul would bring to the attention of those who would consider themselves mature believers. We jump ahead now to verse 22. And here Paul gives something that seems rather odd, but when we think about it, it is the pathway of wisdom. Verse 22, Paul says, So whatever you believe about these things, referring to the whole chapter, the whole topic of disputable matters, whatever you believe about these things, keep them between yourself and God. Blessed is the man who does not condemn himself by what he approves. And so the principle here is this, keep your personal convictions on disputable matters between yourself and God. Now, there are certain truths, of course, primary truths, the big D doctrines that all believers must accept because they are explicitly taught and clear in Scripture, non-negotiables. However, some of us may feel like we have to tell people what we've decided about every single secondary doctrine or debatable subject that maybe isn't even a doctrine per se. But we feel like our personal view on this is the right one and we just want to tell everyone what it is. But according to verse 22, Paul says the way of wisdom is to keep some of these things private. Keep them between yourself and God, he says. Your personal convictions are just that. They are personal. If they were meant to be for everyone, then God would have included them specifically in the Bible. But he didn't. He gave them to you personally 
and they should primarily stay between the two of you personally. Now, this is also not to say that there is never, ever a time or a place to talk about personal convictions with a fellow believer. That's not what Paul is saying here. But as a general principle, that if, if we're just throwing out our personal convictions on everything all the time, and in so doing, putting a stumbling block in front of others, or it's stirring up unnecessary dissension or disputes, then he's saying the path of wisdom in these things is hold your peace. Speak about them with the Lord, but we don't have to talk about them with everyone else or at the coffee shop or, or at every family gathering. If, if this is more of a problem than anything, hold your peace, Paul says, on these secondary matters. I'm challenged by this path of wisdom in Proverbs 12, 23, which echoes what Paul says here. Proverbs 12, 23 says, A prudent man keeps his knowledge to himself, but the heart of a fool blurts out folly. So there's the contrast, right? Blurting versus discretion. That's really what Paul is talking about here. Exercising discretion. There is a time and a place to talk about everything, but not every time or place is that place. Use discretion. Use wisdom. And when uncertain, hold your peace. Albert Barnes, a Bible commentator from many years ago, said of this passage, Be satisfied with cherishing your own opinions. I like that. Be satisfied with cherishing your own opinions. Charles Spurgeon also had this insight on this passage. He says, Do you feel quite sure about such matters? Then keep it within thine own bosom, but do not worry others about it. This can be a challenge at times, can't it? We know what we know, and we're pretty sure that everyone else should know what we know. We think what we think, and we're pretty sure everyone else should think the way that we think, and if they don't, we want to make sure that we set them straight. But Paul says, no, this, this isn't the pathway of wisdom. Use discretion. Know when to hold your peace and keep certain things between yourself and God over these secondary indisputable matters. And now the fifth and final thing we'll draw out from this passage this morning is this. Verse 17, the heart of it is this. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now the fact is that no matter what earthly issue of debate you can think of, whether past, present, or future, I love this, not one of them will exist in God's kingdom. Think about that. Everything that this world has ever been divided over and fought over and disputed over, not one of them will exist in God's kingdom that is coming very soon. Not one issue will remain. When we are before God's throne, think on this. We won't be standing around debating any of the things that we spent so much time and energy on earth debating. And I suspect that when we're before God's throne, that even if we are capable of remembering the things we debated on earth, and, and even take the time and energy to bother thinking on those contentious things that we argued about with others in this life, I think the only thing we'll do is we'll think on it with regret and shame and say, why, why, why did we spend so much time? Why did I spend so much time on these things? Because the only things of this life, Paul's focusing on eternity here, the kingdom of God, the only things of this life that we will carry forward into the kingdom that is coming are the eternal things of God. 
These are the things that you can't put in a bank account. These are not possessions that you put on a shelf. They don't park in a garage. These are the spiritual things of the kingdom, the things that will endure. And Paul lists them, love, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Not things that we quantify, but they are possessions, treasures beyond anything that this world can offer us. And Paul says these things will not only endure, but they will be enhanced in heaven. And we see elsewhere that these things will be enhanced to their purest forms when we are glorified forever with God, without sin, in his eternal presence forever. And so then as we think on eternity and what is coming and what we are living for, it only makes sense, it is only logical that we pursue the eternal things of God's kingdom rather than the things of this earth. Because it is only the eternal things of God's kingdom which will be ours forever. And so over and above all else of this earth, the things that will quickly pass away, Jesus said it best, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Where your treasure is. Where are you living for? This especially relates to our relationship with our fellow believers. The context Paul is talking about. For, think on this, who do you think will be worshipping alongside you in glory? But fellow believers, right? We will be before God's throne with fellow believers, with each other. And this is why Paul says in verse 19, Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. So think on this. If right now you don't want to sit next to so-and-so, and you got a beef with so-and-so, well, think on this. What is coming in glory when we're before God's throne is spending a lot of time, well, time won't exist anymore, that's another topic for another day, but we're going to be together with each other. And so Paul's saying, in the light of what's coming, the kingdom of heaven, let us make every effort now to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification, because God may just put that person right next to you that right now you don't want to look in the eye. He might put them right next to you, in the, I don't know if a seating's assigned before the throne, but, but however it is, I could just see God doing just that. Because, my friends, remember, today is just another choir practice for the big chorus in God's kingdom. And it's coming. It's coming. It's a reality. Think on that. The kingdom is real, and it is coming. It has been birthed in our hearts through faith today. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit is in you, you know it's true. It's in your heart. And it's coming in reality. It's coming and it will be revealed in glory. And so in light of that, make every effort to pursue what leads to peace. Because yes, as Paul acknowledged throughout this chapter, there are times we may be a little out of sync with one another. There may be times where in this choir our harmonies fall flat. But as we focus on Jesus, as we focus on what is coming, our one Lord, our one Savior the author and finisher of our faith, the one, the only one, who is able to unite us together perfectly with God, with himself, and with, yes, one another, then no effort is too great or too small, for it will all be worth it in the end. 
So the final question again, as we look in the mirror, is this. Where may you need to set aside a personal liberty for the sake of not putting a stumbling block in front of a fellow believer? And the second question is, where do you need to make every effort to do what leads to peace? As the Lord directs us, may we be obedient to do what the Spirit impresses upon each one of our hearts to do. There's a story of a father who was trying to read a magazine, but was repeatedly interrupted by his daughter, his little toddler, who kept asking him, what does the United States look like? Finally, on the back of his magazine, he found a map of the country, and so he tore it out. But to make sure that she wouldn't bother him for too much longer, he tore the map up into little pieces like a puzzle, and he told her to take all those pieces into the other room and put it back together. And he thought that this would keep her busy for a long time, and so he could finish reading his magazine in peace. Well, in less than five minutes, his daughter was back with the map completely and perfectly put together. And he was surprised at how quickly she had done it, and he asked her, well, how did you do this? And she replied, it was easy. You see, on the other side of the paper is a picture of Jesus. So when I looked at Jesus and I flipped all the pieces over and I put Jesus back where he belonged, then our country just came together. And so too it is as we put the Lord Jesus back where he belongs, first in our hearts, in our lives, in our families, in our church, in our town, and yes, in our nation. By God's power, we will come together as well, according to his will. Paul wraps up this entire section with this beautiful benediction in Romans 15, 5-7. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind, Towards who? Towards each other that Christ Jesus had. All about attitude. May he give you the same attitude of mind towards each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind, one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is powerful, and it is timely, and it is sharp, sharper than a double-edged sword. And by your Holy Spirit, Lord, it brings conviction, but it is good. It is good to receive conviction from you. And so I pray, Lord, today, grant each one of us the mercy and the strength and the grace to allow you to examine each one of our hearts and our lives right down to the the hidden attitudes and motives of our hearts, Lord. That if we truly want to grow into maturity in the faith, that we would learn these lessons, that we would learn them well, Lord. That when it comes to areas of our personal convictions and liberty, may we not be so stubborn as to hold on to them at all costs if that means putting another brother in peril. But instead, Lord, give us your attitude that we would gladly and willingly surrender them, not for obligation to the law, but for the sake 
of a brother, that we would be a stepping stone rather than a stumbling block. And I pray, Lord, that in all these things, each one of us were resolved to be done with judgment towards one another, instead resolved to be stepping stones, resolved to be those who will make every effort to pursue the path of peace to your glory and to your praise as we look ahead to the kingdom that is coming, where we will worship you before your throne together forever without end and with great joy. Help us in this, O Lord, we pray for your glory. Amen.